Okay. Well, we continue with our introduction now to Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. You might turn there for just a moment, but then have your thumb handy to John chapter 1, verse 17. We're in Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, but tonight we'll spend most of our time in John chapter 1, verse 17. After an extended introduction to the book of Romans, which lasts 15, 16 verses, actually 17 verses, Paul, toward the end of that introduction, says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, But the righteous man shall live by faith. And with those words, Paul gives us the theme of the letter, of Rome, letter to the Romans, which he will outline and expound upon for the rest of the book. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul makes the case that all people need a Savior. First, he, he presents the truth that the immoralist needs a Savior. And all of us would say, Amen to that. But then when he gets to the case that the moralist also needs a Savior, the moral person needs a Savior, some might hesitate. But at least the Jewish person and the Jewish people in his audience wouldn't have hesitated because they might have thought for a little bit and said, well, okay, they're not Jewish, then they need a Savior too. But then Paul concludes with, even the Jew needs a Savior. All mankind is born with a need for a Savior. He'll get to that in chapter 5, but certainly demonstrates a need for a Savior based upon our actions as we go through this life. Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 9 says, All are under sin. There are no exceptions to that, both Jew and Greek. And finally in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, in a summary statement of what he said before, he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Paul, speaking about the idea of justification, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 3, 20, tells us that all men have a need for justification. Then in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, Paul makes a statement that Martin Luther felt like was the central truth of all the scriptures. And certainly it is an extremely important truth. And that is that mankind is justified by faith, apart from any personal works that, that he or she might do. In fact, in verse 28, Paul says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so in, when we move to chapter 4, in order to validate that statement, that pretty profound statement, at least in Paul's day, to validate that, he moves to an Old Testament figure, Abraham, as the model or the illustration of justification by faith. Abraham was a man who was revered by the Jews, and he was respected by many, if not most, Gentiles. No one would question that Abraham had a right standing before God. In fact, if you were to talk to someone in Paul's day, they would say, if anybody would have had a right standing before God, it certainly would have been Father Abraham. Therefore, Paul encourages original readers, and us as well, to take a look back in time at Father Abraham and discover from the Scriptures how Father Abraham was justified. If we can all agree that he was a person who was, then Paul says, Let's go back and look and see, how is he justified? Not according to tradition, not according to the Mishnah or the Prayer of Manasseh or other extra-biblical writings, but what does the Bible say? Because you see, remember the prevailing thought in Paul's day about Abraham was that Abraham was sinless. 
that he didn't need justification. Matter of fact, the prayer of Manasseh says that not only Abraham, but Isaac and Jacob, all three of them were sinless and didn't have a need for justification. Hard to reconcile that with what we read in Genesis, but that's what they believed at the time. The, the person of Abraham had grown into a myth and not a person that was historical and, re, and had his good attributes and some of his bad times, both, recorded in Scripture. But Paul brings us to what many people think, consider it to be the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. That's Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which describes how Abraham was justified. Moses said, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. One of the most quoted verses in, from the Old Testament into the New Testament. So Paul uses the rest of chapter 4 to expound on the truth that is found in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. First, Paul will make the negative side of the argument, and that is that Abraham was not justified by good works or even faith plus works. We studied that in verses 4 through 8. We took a little bit of time in verses 9 through 12 to see that Abraham was not justified by circumcision. And then we have begun an introduction on the fact in verses 13 through 16 that Abraham is not, was not justified by keeping the Mosaic law. That's verses 13 through 16 of chapter 4. Then in verses 17 through 22, Paul expounds upon how Abraham was justified. You see what he's doing? First he presents the, the verse from Genesis 15:6. This is what the Old Testament says. Then he shows you how Abraham was not justified, not by faith plus works or works, not by circumcision, not by keeping the law. And then he turns that coin over to the other side and he's going to tell us how he was justified. And that will be verses 17 through 22. Last week in our introduction to verses 13 through 16, which was to introduce the idea that Abraham was not saved by keeping the Mosaic law, we introduced that by discussing the tenfold purpose of the Mosaic law. And I don't want to, we won't spend a lot of time on that tonight, but I would like to at least review that. If you have notes, you might just follow along. If not, just listen along. But the purpose of the Mosaic law, being tenfold, first was to reveal the holiness of God. And last week we mentioned that this is perhaps the central function, the primary function of the Mosaic Law, to reveal the holiness of God. Second, to reveal or expose the sinfulness of man. Third, to reveal the standard of holiness required of those who would walk in fellowship with a holy God. Fourth, Paul says in Galatians that the law was to be a schoolmaster leading to Christ. Fifth, the law was to be the unifying principle that made possible the establishment of a nation. Remember, the law was given to a redeemed people who had exited, exited the land of Egypt and were about to become a nation. It is a unifying principle that helps make possible the establishment of that nation. Sixth, the Mosaic law was to separate Israel from the nations in order that they might become a kingdom of priests. Seventh, to make provision for the forgiveness of sins and restoration to fellowship. Eighth, to make provision for a redeemed people to worship. 
Ninth, to function as a test as, a, as to whether or not one was in the kingdom or the theocracy over which God ruled. We've discussed from time to time the idea that perhaps all the people that left Israel were not necessarily regenerate people, to use a New Testament term, saved people. There was a rabble that went along with the redeemed out of Israel that certainly proved themselves not to be redeemed. And the Mosaic Law gave them an, a, a function, a, a test, to see if they were really part of the nation. And finally, the Mosaic Law had the purpose of revealing the coming Messiah. As we were finishing up last week, we had to do so in a bit of a hurry, we considered two final aspects of the Mosaic Law to help us understand where the law fits into the believer's life in the church age. Now, for those of all of us who've grown up around dispensational teaching, that might cause the hair on the back of your neck to stand up right now, because we would think that, we would understand from Paul, that we're not under the Mosaic Law. So how in the world could I say that there is an application of the Mosaic Law for the believer today? Well, listen along, and I think it'll make perfect sense to you. As we look back over those ten reasons, or the, or the ten reasons for the giving of the law and the purpose of the law, we can observe that in the Mosaic Law, there was that which was revelatory of the holiness of God. This aspect of the Mosaic Law was permanent. That which was revelatory, that which told us something about the essence and character of God, that doesn't change. That's a permanent aspect of the Mosaic Law. Holiness does not change from age to age. And that which revealed the holiness of God to Israel may be still used to reveal the holiness of God to the church. That which reveals the holiness of God reveals at the same time the unholiness of man. So it is this revelatory aspect of the law that the Apostle Paul refers to in the New Testament as holy, just, and good. Paul's going to say if, the, if someone was to use the law lawfully, that's a good thing. And he says that at the very end of his ministry. When Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, you know what he was talking about? He was talking about the Hebrew Scriptures in that context. It's profitable. That's how it's profitable, because of the revelatory aspects of the Mosaic Law. There was also, though, in the Mosaic Law, that which was regulatory. The law regulated the life and worship of the Israelite. It's this regulatory aspect of the Mosaic Law that was temporary and has been done away with. So you have the revelatory aspect, that which tells us something about the holiness and the very character of God. That's permanent. Also, in comparison, the unholiness of man. That information is permanent, and that's how the law could be used lawfully. That's how Paul could say it's holy, just, and good for us today. But the regulatory aspects of the Mosaic Law is what Paul says we're not under anymore. It's the regulatory aspect of the law that was temporary. That has been done away with. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, We know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. And we could legitimately ask, how can the law be used lawfully in an age where the law is said to have been done away with? Well, if the law is used to reveal the holiness of God, the unholiness of man, or to learn of the person and the work of Christ, then it is used lawfully. There are those who attempt, though, in today's world, to use the the law in a regulatory way, to impose the regulations of the Mosaic Law upon the believer in the church age. That's not using the law lawfully. Those who attempt to use the regulatory portions of the law, which were valid as a rule of life, only until Christ, to use the words of the scriptures, are using the law unlawfully. And unfortunately, there's quite a few believers today. That's preached from a lot of pulpits. And there are certain aspects of the law that were not repeated in the New Testament. They were regulatory for that age only, for that redeemed people only. And believers should not be placed under those regulations. That was last week. Now, if you'll permit me, I would like to introduce just one more very important piece of information about the significance of the law that I believe will be of a great help in understanding not only this passage that we embark on, Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, but also some very key aspects of the spiritual life for the believer in this dispensation. So I know you've had a long day. I know it's getting late, and I know all of us are fatigued. But this last portion, these last 20 minutes or so, is really important stuff. So ask the Holy Spirit to give you the energy to finish well, and I think you will, be, you will find it a great benefit. For this portion, let's go ahead and turn. I ask you to hold your finger in, in John chapter 1. Let's turn there. And we'll be here for most of the rest of the time so you can allow your Bibles to lay open there. This present dispensation has been called by the Apostle Paul the dispensation of the grace of God. And this has led many dispensationalists to draw a sharp distinction between the law and grace. And if a passage was ever used to validate that distinction... It's John chapter 1, verse 17. But if you'll allow me, I'd like to begin reading in verse 14 to help us get up to speed on the context. Remember, one of the things that John's doing in John chapter 1 is he is establishing the truth of the deity of Jesus Christ. And in verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, 
He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For, his, for of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Now our passage. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Can you see how dispensationalists, of which I count myself, would draw a sharp distinction between law and grace because of what John is saying in this passage. In the Old Testament, there was a system of law. In the present dispensation, we function not under law, but under grace. At least, that would be the common teaching of dispensationalism today. The spiritual life in the church age, then, would not be one of rules and regulations, but one of grace. Have you heard that before? Perhaps even taught it before. They had a system of rules and regulations and law, but the believer in the dispensation of the grace of God is not under law or rules and regulations, but we function under grace. Whatever that means. I'm not real sure sometimes. Sometimes we take it too far and get into what's known as antinomianism, which means anti-law, in which we become a law unto ourselves, and we're rightly criticized for that. But it is a common understanding of those who attend dispensational churches that in the Old Testament there's a system of law. In this dispensation we function under not under law but under grace. And in this dispensation, we're not under rules and regulations, but we're under grace. And I think all of us have had some variation of that understanding of the distinction between law and grace. Now, in the next few minutes, I hope to seriously challenge our thinking in this area. Let me begin this way by asserting as strongly as I can, no one has ever been justified before God apart from the grace of God. No one has ever been justified before God apart from the grace of God. This is true whether we're speaking of the New Testament or the Old Testament, whether we speak of Adam or Abraham or Peter or Paul. No one has ever been justified apart from the grace of God. Because of the emphasis in the past upon the New Testament teaching that we don't live under the Mosaic law as a rule of life, and that's absolutely true, by the way. Hopefully we've already established that in past classes, and at least not, if not then, this evening. We don't live under the Mosaic law as a rule of life. It's somehow been misconstrued that there was no grace, therefore, in the Old Testament, nor is there any law in the New Testament. But nothing could be further from the truth. Let's take a careful look at John 1.17, and I think we might see where we have gone wrong in our understanding of this distinction between law and grace. The passage starts out, For the law was given through Moses, and then goes on to say, Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, there's one correction that we need to make in our understanding right from the get-go when it comes to the translation of this passage. In the 
King James Bible, and perhaps even before the King James Bible, but at least by 1611, there was a word added to the Greek text of this verse in an, in an attempt to interpret what the verse meant. And that, that word in English is the word but. Now, the New American Standard and the NIV have recognized that this word was added wrongly, and so they've taken it out. So in my New American Standard, it actually reads, For the law was given through Moses, semicolon. Grace and truth were realized or came through Jesus Christ. If you have a New King James Bible, and by the way, New King James is a fine translation. I use it frequently. The difference in New King James and, on the one hand, a New American Standard, and NIV on the other hand, is not the quality of the translation. It's the manuscripts that are behind the translation. There's different manuscript traditions behind each one of those. But the addition of the word but between those two phrases is not a legitimate addition. And that's why subsequent English translations have corrected that. There still may be a, there's a possibility that there's a bit of a contrast going on, but the, the first observation that we need to make is if you do have a New King James, perhaps some other translations might add it as well, the word but should be in italics. Now one word about that. Just because a word was added doesn't necessarily make it wrong. It's the job of a translator, of a New Testament scholar, to take the thought of the Greek text and apply it as best as we can, translate it as best as we can into English thought so that we'd understand what's going on in the thought over here. So sometimes the most literal translations from Greek into English are not necessarily the best if they don't accurately render the thought. But also it's, it's a temptation that translators have, oftentimes, to insert their own understanding of a passage into the translation that goes beyond just getting the thought from one language into another. And apparently, that's what happened with the original translators of the King James. And unfortunately, and I, the reason I say unfortunately, I know men who have worked on, the, for example, the, the New King James Study Bible that know better than to put that in there, but for some reason there's just this pull that we can't change it, so they've left the word but in it. The reason I bring that up, even though most of you have probably NIV or a New American Standard, is that when we do scripture memory, most scripture memory associations recommend that we do it from the King James or New King James. In fact, we use that in our own church as well. So if you've memorized this verse before, it's, it's difficult, even if you're looking at the words, to read it without the but. First observation, the but is not there. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now there's another critical point of observation here, and that is, it may, it may seem like it's very clear, but I want to make it anyway. The Mosaic law did not originate with Moses. Look at what the text says. It was given through Moses. The Old Testament speaks of it be, being given through the hand of Moses. But it did not originate with Moses. It was given through Moses. So then where did it originate? Who gave it to Moses? You tell me. God gave it. If we were to put this on the board... Get this out of your way here. Let's start off like this. 
The traditional understanding of John 1.17 would say, through the law, I'm sorry, through Moses came the law. Then there's a but, a contrast, which we've seen, I hope you see, is, is not there. But through Jesus came grace. That's the typical understanding. And then there's a contrast between these two aspects. That's how the distinction over the last, at least the last 100, 120 years has been drawn. Law came through Moses. Grace came through Jesus. Contrast, because that word but was in there, but we've seen that it's not. But there was a contrast understood between the law and grace. God, though, gave the law to Moses. Now, even up until our time to, uh, to this point tonight, I've called it the Mosaic Law. That's theological shorthand. I mean, we all do that. But really, we're, we're considering the law of God, which was given to the people of Israel through Moses. And that's important, because it's not Moses' law, this is, this is critical. It's God's law that was given through Moses. Paul's going to make this point in an expanded way later on in his epistle, but I want to lay the foundation for this here tonight. This is where we have to be extremely careful as dispensationalists, as those and I'm one of them, who do not believe we're under the regulatory aspects of the Mosaic Law. We've got to be really, really careful because it's not Moses' law. It's God's law. So if we were to malign the law the cat with a capital L, we're not really maligning Moses. You've got to look who you're maligning because the law just came through Moses it came from God. So I would, would say if we direct our distaste toward the law, we're not really directing our distaste toward Moses. It's really going toward God. So that's why I want us to be very, very careful. And I'm afraid that's what some dispensational teaching has led to. An idea that somehow the law was bad. Can the law be bad? Please say no, real quick. No, it's not bad because God wrote it. Don't blame Moses. God gave it to Moses for his people. And we've already seen ten, the tenfold purpose of the Mosaic Law, some of which was revelatory, some of which was regulatory. God is eternal. His attributes are eternal. And from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, we understand God, Yahweh, to be a God of grace. Here's part of the problem that we have in the church age. There's a temptation to spend all our time in the New Testament epistles. And so we can, by doing that, develop an ignorance of what's going on in the Old Testament and not realize that the New Testament is built upon Old Testament revelation. I assure you that in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, God is presented as a God of grace. And wouldn't he have to be? 
because I hope we established a minute ago that no one who has ever been born from Adam up to the present day has ever been justified apart from the grace of God. If there was no grace in the Old Testament, there's no justification in the Old Testament. So we need to be careful with this. God didn't attain the attribute of grace or function under the attributes that would lead to grace after Calvary or on the day of Pentecost. Of course he didn't. He had them from eternity. That the law was given through Moses is itself an act of grace. We've got to establish that in order to fully appreciate what Paul's going to do in the rest of Romans. The law itself was the giving of the law to a redeemed people for, those, for that tenfold purpose, both revelatory and regulatory, was an act of grace. But we still have this next phrase that appears to be, if, if, if the word but's not there, which it's not, at least it still appears to be a contrast. Even if you leave the word but out, law came through Moses, but we've established it's God's law. Grace came through Jesus. Don't you see that even, even without the word but, some people could still imply a contrast? I mean, it, it's not very strong without the but, but it could be implied. How do we deal with that? Well, one way we deal with it is look at the whole verse. Because is that really what it says? The law came through Moses, but grace came through Jesus Christ? What else does it say? You tell me. Grace and truth. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, do you see the theological difficulty you're going to have if you want to draw a contrast between law and what's happening over here, you're not just drawing a contrast between law and grace. Look at what else you got to draw a contrast between law and truth. And is there anyone among us who would dare say that the law was not truth? I think not. You see the problems that can be solved if we just look at the verse carefully. And even in English, you can see this. Now, these two words form what is called a hendites, which means they both are referring to a concept that's similar. They build upon one another. But I want you to see that what's happening is God gave the law through Moses. On the other side of the equation, and remember what we stated a minute ago, that at least one of John's purposes in First John in, in the in the first chapter of the Gospel of John was, anybody remember, just a few minutes ago, to, to demonstrate the doctrine of the deity of Christ. All right. Jesus is God. What you really have is a more balanced equation. God gave the law through Moses. God is giving grace and truth through Jesus. Although, what I would prefer to do, since Jesus Christ is God, I don't know if this works, I would write it like that. The passage is not attempting to draw a distinction 
between law and grace and truth. The passage is demonstrating that it's God who gave them both. It's not a distinction here. That's not, that's not at all what John's doing. He's showing you in John chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is God. Now let me show you how he does that. The verse is actually drawing more of a comparison than a contrast. What John is saying in John chapter 1 is what God is, Jesus also is. What God showed himself to be in Torah, or law, so now Jesus shows himself to be in the concepts of grace and truth. Well, what's going on with this concept of law then? Ron Allen, who's a Hebrew professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and in in my view one of the greatest living Old Testament scholars today said the law it's it's not it was not handcuffs but God's pointed finger graciously marking out to the redeemed the path of life and the path to fellowship with him the point of John 117 then is not then it's bad and now it's good that's not the point the point is then it's wonderful Now it's better than ever. This is a fulfillment of God's self-revelation to man. It didn't mean that the earlier revelation was bad. It just means that now we have a fuller understanding of who God is because of the incarnate member of the Godhead, the visible member, Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus Christ came, he, he actually said it is finished twice. Remember he says it once in John 17? He says it once on the cross. In John 17, of course, that's in the, the priestly prayer. It's a long time before, well, hours before he would go to the cross. But he all, or it said at that point, the work that I've come to do is finished. Well, that's puzzling because I thought he came to pay for the sins of the world, which he did. But a secondary purpose of him coming was to reveal the Father to mankind. So it's not bad, good. It's wonderful and even better now. In John chapter 1, the Apostle John draws from an extremely important Old Testament verse. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. I'll read that to you. This is uh, The context of this verse is this is the second time God's going to give Moses the Mosaic Law. The first time, remember, he comes down off Mount Sinai, finds the people partying. Uh, it's a disastrous situation. God's going to wipe them out. Moses intercedes for them goes and gets the law a second time. It's during the second giving of the law that Exodus 34, verse 6 is stated. The Lord passed in front of him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in grace and truth. I want to read that again in case you're just now paying attention. The Lord passed by in front of him Moses and proclaimed, this is Old Testament now, this is Torah, this is law. The Lord passed by in front of him Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in grace and truth. Hesed the Emmet. 
in the Old Testament in the Hebrew language. Sound familiar? Ought to. What John is doing, he's, he's going to a very familiar Old Testament passage. In fact, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, is the most quoted passage of the Hebrew Scriptures in the Hebrew Scriptures. Meaning it's the most quoted Old Testament passage in the Old Testament, or alluded to in the old, other Old Testament writers. From the very beginning, from the very beginning, the Israelites understood God to be a God of grace and truth. Hesed Emmet. And now John, in John chapter 1, verse 17, is using exactly the same phrase of Jesus Christ. Now I know when Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and want to discuss the deity of Christ with you, it's going to be a little difficult to go through this argument with them. But I want to tell you, that's what John's telling you here. He's telling you that Jesus of Nazareth, that, that John will say, that I'm introducing in John chapter 1, is the very Yahweh of Exodus chapter 34. It's not a contrast. It's an expansion. It's not bad and then good. It's wonderful and even better. God has expressed his character as Hesed the Emmet, grace and truth. And in Jesus, God is revealed more fully than ever. This Greek phrase, grace and truth, means that Jesus is exactly what God is known to be. But now in the incarnation, God's character is seen better than ever. Now it's seen in the living, incarnate person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. So please, don't misunderstand law to be bad and grace and truth to be good. Both are good. Don't think back to the Old Testament and say, well, grace is a New Testament concept. No, grace was, was alive and well in the Old Testament. But guess what? It doesn't mean that there are no rules of life for the New Testament believer either. Charles Ryrie, when defining a dispensation, defined it as a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. I remember when I was ordained, I gave that definition to one of the um, people on the panel. said, what do you mean by economy? Uh, well, what I meant by economy, or what Ryrie meant by economy, was a rule of life. And I saw the look on the man's face. Well, you could tell he was thinking, well, why didn't you just say rule of life then? <laughs> because we got to sound important. It's the, you know, <laughs> but a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. A, a distinguishable rule of life. But dispensational teaching should not be misunderstood to think that there's grace then. I mean, grace now, law then. There was grace and a rule of life. Here, there's grace and truth, and truth was back here too, grace and truth and a rule of life here too. But the rule of life does not include the regulatory aspects of the Mosaic law, or the law that was given through Moses to redeem people. That is what Paul is going to tell us later has been set aside. 
We don't live under that. Hope that makes sense. John's not talking about a contrast. He's talking about a fulfillment and an exposition of who Jesus Christ really was. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this wonderful word. I thank you for the the golden nuggets that could be pulled out of it if we would just look at it carefully. Father, I thank you for those who have gathered with me tonight to lift our prayers and petitions before you and to open up your word and glean truth from it. And now, Father, as we go our way, I pray that you would dismiss us with the riches of thy grace and peace and mercy upon us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.